the underlying message I want her to grow up with is I don't care what you do. You could be a stay-at-home mom, good for you. You could be a Nobel Prize winner. You could be a Fulbright scholar. I don't care as long as you're the best damn fill in the blank that you can be. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Army Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Jaster is a soldier, an engineer, a wife and mother, and also a trailblazer. She's one of only three women to graduate from the first integrated United States Army Ranger program, one of the most difficult combat training courses in the world. Lisa was the first female Army Reserve officer to become Ranger qualified. These days, Lisa is a fitness fanatic who continues to train CrossFit and Jiu-Jitsu. She has a hard-won understanding of the importance of perseverance, as well as deeply ingrained respect for camaraderie stemming from a seven-year-long active-duty career. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get to it. All right, another great conversation coming your way today. And I'm going to say this is a first, but it's not going to be the first that, you, you know, you by now you know a little bit who I'm interviewing, but it's not the first that you might think. This is the first Army Ranger we've had on the show. All right. So we've had Navy SEALs. Let's see. We've had a Green Beret. We've had quite a few fighter pilots. We've had some Apache pilots. So all across the board. But this is the Lisa, you are our first Army Ranger. So that's kind of a cool thing. So welcome to the Forge. Thanks for having me, Ron. You bet. And thanks for being here. I know you're you're quite busy. And you know, thank you for your service as well. So Goodness, we're going to get into your book. And this book, I love the title. And we're going to, I'm going to dissect this title with you, Lisa. So it's called Delete the Adjective, A Soldier's Adventures in Ranger School. Okay. So before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about you, Lisa. Tell us, you know, I'm kind of curious. You graduated from West Point. What drove that motivation to not only go into the military, but, but also West Point? So if you're looking at at my background, you can see I love books. I love technical books. I love every type of book. So there was a book written by a young officer named Captain Carol Barkalow. She was one of the first women to graduate from West Point in the class of 1980. So the interesting thing about this is her book was on sale for 99 cents at Harvard. And my grandmother walked by this book sale And my father's a West Point grad. She saw this book and she mailed it to me when I was in sixth or seventh grade. And I read the book and that was right around the time of the first Desert Storm, Desert Shield. And I'm watching these people on TV and they're superheroes, but they're not actors in capes. They're actual superheroes that are out there. And no matter what your political leanings are, everybody in the 90s was, hey, we're here to help Kuwait. And Everybody loved the military. There was high support for it. I read this book and I'm like, wow, that sounds really hard. I want to be a real world superhero. So I was in seventh grade and decided I'm going to go to West Point. And 
And that was it. Seventh grade. Boom. Decision was made. Wow. But it sounds like you came from, I mean, you had a family that, I mean, there's a, there's a tradition there in your family. Is that correct? Oh yeah. My maternal grandfather was army air corps before there was an air force in world war II. dad, uncles, so forth. Lots of military in the family, but definitely growing up in a small town in Wisconsin, huge patriotic community as well. Yeah. And so, all right. Number one, I can remember when we, when we first went to Iraq and I don't know, I get the sense we might at least be in the general vicinity of the same age. And I do remember, I was like, wow, I'm going to go sign up tomorrow. So I, there was a lot of, you know, of that patriotic fervor that was going around. I remember that as a, as a fairly young man at the time was how, how welcoming was it at West Point for females at that time? You know, I hear some of my peers tell stories and I don't know if it's personality based or the people you were around, but I always felt very accepted. I felt like I was pushed really hard. I felt like I was pushed by my peers, both male and female. And I really felt like nobody cared that I was female. So my squad mates pushed me really hard. I had a female squad leader who gave me no extra breathing room. If I fell out of a run, she was just as mad at me as she was at any of the males who fell out of a run. And, and I went from dancing ballet and being a cheerleader to going to West Point. So, you know, I, I had a lot to catch up on during cadet basic training, but I really do feel that at least at West Point for my personal experience, I never felt like I was given any leeway, but I also don't feel like I was treated worse because of my gender. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, I've, anybody that's a regular listener of the forging metal podcast, no, there's a couple of things. Number one, I, part of my mission is to highlight strong female leaders like yourself, Lisa, but I've interviewed again, quite a few female fighter pilots, people, you know, women that go into a very male dominated field. And, and I work with engineers and let's be honest, female engineers, I think make up about 13% of the engineering workforce. So, I'm pretty familiar with that world and I've heard a few horror stories, but for the most part, they've been pretty good, you know, much like your story. They say, you know what? I, I wasn't treated, you know, or at least discriminated against. Mm -hmm. Now I had some guests that say, yeah, it was a little bit, you know, it was, it was walking the line and some have had really poor behavior, but oh, yeah. it's good to hear that even, you know, 20, I don't know. How long was, it? how long ago was that Lisa? So I went to West Point in 1996 and okay. And I, want, I do want to add like one little thing onto this, this dialogue. And that's the fact that there were a couple of times where people tried to get away with something because I was female, either they were uh -huh. inappropriate or whatever it was. The great part about my experience at West Point was that I had battle buddies to my left and right who were not going to stand for that rubbish, mm. who made sure that they nipped it and they taught me how to stand up for myself. As a, as a young person from a small town, I hadn't dealt with that previously. And I learned very quickly what the battle buddy system truly can be like. And I think that makes a big difference in, in our environment. And as an engineer, I'm a civil engineer by degree. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've worked in the construction environment and there were lots of opportunities for bad situations, but it wasn't only being a strong female individual. It's also those guys to my left and my right who weren't going to put up with that bull. Like, and, and, and those are the true heroes of the day, right? Because they're setting the standard. 
Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll give a lecture at the university where I talk to my students about this, you know, and, and I said, man, don't tune out this lecture. I go, this is our battle too. We need to stand up for our sisters. And I've had other, you know, female fighter pilots say that they go, I can stand up for myself, but they go, it's even better when that, that person left or, or right of me stands up for me so that we all know, you know, this, this isn't cool. This doesn't fly. And we're all in this together. So men, we are, we are part of the solution and obviously part of the problem too, but don't let, don't let our sisters do all the fighting for themselves. Let, let's, let's help them out. So I think that's a good message. What do you, I mean, as we're on that topic, what is your, you know, let's say you're talking, do you have, do you have kids, Lisa? I do. I have a 14-year-old boy who's a freshman in high school and a about-to-be-11-year-old girl who's in fifth grade. All right. So let's go to your 11-year-old daughter. What uh, what kind of advice do you give her? I mean, as she goes out into this, this big, scary world, you know, how does she, I mean, what advice would you have for her if she wanted to follow in your footsteps? You know, Ron, I, when I drop my kids off at school before they're allowed to leave the car, otherwise I embarrass the living daylights out of them, they have to say one thing to me every single morning. And I say, what are you going to do today? And they reply with be awesome. So I tell you that story to say, you know, whether we're talking about my daughter or my son, specifically, you're asking about my daughter, the underlying message I want her to grow up with is I don't care what you do. You could be a stay at home mom. Good for you. You could be a Nobel prize winner. You could be a Fulbright scholar. I don't care as long as you're the best damn fill in the blank that you can be. My goal for my kids is that they wake up every morning and decide to be awesome and make themselves into their best version every time they can. We all fail and we all fall when we're trying to to reach that goal of being the best version of ourselves, but you have to start the day with that intent. So if she wants to join the military and be combat arms and be the tip of the spear, great. And if she wants to be a homemaker, that's great. And if she wants to drive a bus, that's great. I don't care as long as she's the best possible version of that. Mm. Well, that's a nice segue into your book, but I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go there yet. You know, sound (laughs) like a lot of adjectives there, there, Lisa. Let's, before we get to that, you know, I've had, I've had a guest on Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote a book about, you know, raising resilient kids. And we had a discussion about you know, a lot of parents try to remove suffering for their kids, you know, smooth, smooth the road, right? There's a lot of, a lot of sayings and cliches about yep. parents that are, that are doing that. And and it comes from a good place. I think it comes from love, right? You don't want to see your child. And by the way, I'm not a parent, so it's a little hard for me to get there, but you don't want to see your, your kids suffer and struggle. So you try to eliminate that. What are your thoughts on that? Do you, I mean, of course, you're probably not going to say, I want to see him struggle, but maybe you will. How do you balance that between being protective mom and letting them go out there and fall down and skin their knees? Controlled suffering. So I do want to see my kids suffer. My Both of my kids wrestling, I think, is one of the greatest ways to teach resilience. If you or anyone you know has ever wrestled or done jujitsu, there is nothing worse than having a full-grown human being try to snuff the life out of you, press reset, and then do it again. Like, and, and that's what that's what wrestling is. That's what jujitsu is. So both of my kids, my daughter had to, and she complains about it sometimes, but she had to go to her jujitsu training and her wrestling class last night, even though she's had three days of volleyball this week, she's had two days of basketball. 
Like, hey, I know that you're in all these other seasons, but if you're not doing anything tonight, you're going to go to the gym and you're going to do jits and wrestling. Same with my son. You know, he wrestles. But not only that, but my husband and I are fairly athletic. And of course, we're raising both of our children very athletic, meaning they both come home and they go to the gym and they lift weights. My 10-year-old, about to be 11-year-old daughter has a 135-pound back squat, which I know adults that can't do that. And, and so, you know, they are constantly being pushed. So not only do we sign them up for these sports, but we sign them up an age bracket, a weight bracket, so that, yes, we have them really well trained, but I don't want my five foot seven, 10 year old daughter who's very athletic playing with other 10 year olds who are five, one, four, nine in basketball. I want her playing with the 12 year olds because that's competition for her. And that's, So I say controlled suffering and I don't want her crying herself to sleep at night. I don't want my son trying to quit sports because he's just never going to achieve. But I want to push them that so hard that they're at their limits as much as possible, both physically and mentally, as well as academically. Like in the summer, we make them take summer school classes online, not because we're hateful parents, but hey, listen, you know, you, you got to continue through this because in 10 years, you'll realize the suffering you did now is what makes your life a little bit easier. You know, when when mom can reach back to something she she shouldn't know anything about. I was talking about the Pythagorean theorem with my son and he's like, well, wait, when do you remember that from? I'm like, I, I studied the hell out of that freshman year of high school. And he's like, yeah, but you're 45, mom. I'm like, that's right. And someday you're going to help your son with his homework. And so controlled suffering is the short answer to that question. You know, I did a TED talk and it had had this word that that you and I both like. I know this because I've been reading your book, this word adversity. It sounds like a lot of adversity in there. So what does adversity teach us in your mind, Lisa? So referencing the book, I actually have a, a phrase in there that's been quoted back to me. I had my first book signing last night and I had five or six people actually quote it to me, which is adversity doesn't build character. It reveals it. And so when you test yourself, when you put yourself in a really hard situation and you see how you react, that's what you need to train. How do you stay calm in stressful situations? How do you maintain the, the mental peace when everyone else is losing their head. And I just watched, there was a, it was a gentleman on vacation in Vegas and he, he, he and his family were walking by a car accident and the car started on fire. The guy owns a barbershop. He pulled a dude out of this burning vehicle and didn't think anything of it. Like his comments were, I'm not a hero. It's not that big of a deal. And How do you get to that point where when you're in a really stressful situation and everyone else is, you know, taking out their cell phones or screaming or whatever they're doing, your first thought is, hey, I didn't see the driver of that vehicle get out of that vehicle. I'm going to run towards the the burning car. So building adversity, testing adversity, creating a stressful environment is how you train yourself to be at peace when everyone else is entering chaos. And I think you you just took my my next question, but let's see if we can expand on it. I mean, we don't, I think you would agree, you don't have to be an army ranger to benefit from being the calm in the storm, as I like to say. I mean, there's a lot of situations in our life 
I think you you would you would agree with this that where that's a that's a valuable thing or a valuable skill to have. What do you think? Well, outside okay. of pulling somebody from a burning car, what about yeah, as well, you as a, as a project manager? Well, I was thinking even you as a teacher, you've got a you've got somebody who has a seizure during class. You are the leader of that environment, regardless of what your specialty is, what you are as a human. Your specific reaction to that young man or woman having a life-changing event impacts everybody in the room. And that discussion, however you reacted, is going to flow through campus like wildfire. Everybody's going to be like, hey, Professor Duran said this or did this or he spazzed. Like everybody's going to know within 15 minutes or less because that's that's campus life. So I think, I don't know that I'm really even on your question, but I think it makes such a huge impact, not in army ranger or being at the tip of the spear or fighting in combat. Like it's every day. You never know if you're going to get tested or not. So you have to be prepared. Of course, I'm a huge fan of like Fieldcraft survival and all of these organizations that are really big on preparedness, but that's, do you have band-aids in your car? Great. But do you have super glue? Because when somebody falls and hits their head on something metal, a band-aid's not going to help. But until you can get them stitches, super glue will. Does your kid play soccer? Yes. Do you have eye drops in your car? Because somebody's going to get something in their eye. So be the cool person who's like, hey, just let me get my bag out of my car and we'll take care of this. There's, there's, no, there's nobody in life who doesn't have emergencies that they have to deal with. But, you know, Army Rangers. Now, I graduated Ranger School. I was never assigned to a Ranger unit. But those guys in the 75th Ranger Battalion, their preparedness is for something else. But a stay-at-home mom, she's dealing with boiling water and a kid that's going to put a knife in the outlet, drowning in the backyard pool. Like, their preparedness needs to be at the same exact level just for different threats and risks. I, I, as soon as we get done with this podcast, I'm going to go out and put some super glue and some eye drops in my glove box and, and make sure that I don't get those two confused. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, the I don't know. I was going to say when I was growing up, you know, be be a Boy Scout or be a Girl Scout. You know, have that be that that person that's prepared. So yeah, I mean, well said. Well said. I I that's one of my specialties is is teaching people to perform well under pressure. And I I like to say. Just like what you said, if you can be that person that you get a reputation for being that person that's calm under, you know, in a crisis situation, people come to you. I mean, they they look to you when everything's going to hell, they'll look to you. Let's say Lisa has got this dialed in. I've seen her in action. And so all eyes will go on to you. And I think that's a very rare, very powerful thing. And so you don't have to be an army ranger or a Navy SEAL or or whatever to take advantage of that. There's always moments of opportunity. Let's get to your book now. Okay. So I already, I already talked about the, the title. Let's talk about that title. For the listeners, let's just, let's just say it again. Delete the adjective, A Soldier's Adventures in Ranger School. The first thing that just pops in my head, what does that mean? Delete the adjective. Let's start with the, the actual title, Lisa. Yeah. What do you, what's the message you're trying to get across there? So in a world where diversity and inclusion and equity is such a hot topic, Sometimes we fail to understand that diversity is not just creating a beautiful cornucopia. 
Okay. We talk about visual diversity too much. What we forget is cognitive diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of experience. All of those things are extremely critical to building an excellent team, an innovative team in the business world. Well, none of that can work. None of those diverse teams can work if we don't first meet the minimum standard. So recruit, hire, make diverse teams, that's great. But the adjectives cannot be what defines the individual. Otherwise, you're missing the boat. You're missing the the primary reason for existing. So when you talk about, in this example, Army Ranger School, there was an existing minimum standard, and that standard was based on job requirements. And there was a lot of discussions. And let's talk about the movie G.I. Jane. You know, for those who can't go see what Ranger School is like in a minute or aren't in the military, G.I. Jane is a great example. They started the movie giving her female standards. Well, was she ever going to get the respect of her peers or be effective in a combat zone if she used a step to climb the wall when everyone else had to scale it themselves? Was she ever going to become a true member of the team if she had a crush that they didn't have? And in the movie, actually, Hollywood does a great job of explaining that dynamic. The standards had to be the same. So the book exists to outline that I cannot be a female Ranger School graduate. I cannot be middle-aged. I can't be a mom. Like, that's why people know my name, because I stick out. And diversity should be celebrated, but it shouldn't define me. I shouldn't be a female Ranger School graduate. I should be a Ranger School graduate. Oh, yeah, she's a female. It it needs to be the afterthought and not the definition, because Mm -hmm. then you're putting an asterisk next to my name, and you're really saying, well, I'm a lesser version of the guys who went through. So it's an interesting discussion and it's it's always hard to explain because I do believe that diversity inclusion is important, but that's step two or it's step zero. You know, recruit the diverse communities, look for building diverse teams because you want to be innovative, you want to be forward thinking, you want to have diversity of thought and cognitive diversity, but the minimum standards have to be met. Hopefully that makes some sort of sense. <laughs> total, total sense. And, you know, I, I once did a a leadership, it was called Leadership, Women in Leadership. And it was a panel, I think I had four former guests from the podcast, and they were all female military aviators. And almost all the audience was women. And I remember my co my co moderator and myself. My co moderator was female, and I said, "Gosh, I was hoping we were going to get more men in the audience." And I was kind of bummed. And at the end of the panel, I asked the you know the, the the women in the panel, "I go, how do we get men to talk about this?" And they said, "Take women out of the title." Yep. <laughs> and so when I look at your book title, it says "Delete the Adjective," and then it says "A Soldier's Adventures in Ranger School." Pay attention, listeners. Notice it doesn't say a female soldier's adventures in ranger school. I think we need to get to that point. And and I'll bet you agree, Lisa. We need to get to that point where we remove that and say, you know what? We don't have to say female or male. It's just a soldier. And I don't know if we're there yet. Because here's the thing. The media likes to, I don't know, make this a big story, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. First female that went through ranger school, first female fighter pilot, whatever it is. And that's great. 
But most of the women I've talked to say, you know what? I'd just rather be known as a pilot or a yeah. ranger or, yeah. or whatever it is. And yeah. so what are your thoughts on that? So my book, interestingly enough, so my dad was a West Point class of 1968 and he passed away. And this year at his birthday, his class was getting together in Washington, D.C. and visiting the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And I got an invite to go in his place. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be interesting because these old fuddy daddies who have seen real combat. I mean, Vietnam veterans, like nobody, nobody doubts that those guys saw it all and they're they're gonna hate me and I said okay I'm, I'm gonna do this I was invited they didn't invite me to yell at me right so so I went and I showed up and the book came out and I sent a copy to the gentleman who invited me well he went to ranger school in 1968 he served with my father he reads the book and goes I remember this I remember this I remember this and he other than a handful of stories one of the comments he made was I could have written this book like these, these are my experiences too. And I think that's the start of the discussion of, wait a second here, her ranger school experience is exactly like, or similar to his ranger school experience. And that starts the conversation. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, getting more men into the room was Fred read the book and he was like, Hey, my son, you need to read this. You're in the military. Good. Your experience was your experience. And it's, it's really, really interesting because I talked about diversity of thought. Well, my thought process is impacted by the fact that I'm a female, but my leadership is not a female leadership style. It's impacted by being female. And what happens when you have a female like me that likes to hunt, that likes to go to the field? I love going to the field. Who likes to shoot guns? Who likes to compete in the tactical games and do Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Am I now a dude because I don't fit in those female parameters of what I like and don't like? Like it becomes really complicated. And that's why you just need to get rid of the adjectives. Yeah. It sounds like putting, you know, trying to put people in a box, right? Right. And and that's one of the things I just rebel against. Don't don't try to put me in a box. I'm way too diverse to to do that. And I think there's a lot of people that that share that idea with me. Let's talk about some of those experiences that that you're kind of alluding to in Ranger School. You know, as I was reading your book, you know, I'm an ultra runner, and so the first thing I, I noticed you're crazy. was. Let's just say you've lost your mind at some point. It's it, it's all just relative of the kind of crazy you have. Yes, Ranger going to Ranger School is crazy too. But yeah, I, I will I will go there and say it probably is crazy. But you know, I look at your your entrance exam, and and I know there's going to be some ultra runners, some friends of mine probably listening to this. The entrance requirement was, if I remember right, it was a, a five mile run in forty minutes. Is that right? Yep. So everybody doing their their high school math, that's an eight minute mile, five mile run. So that's 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 legit. I mean, that's yeah. not that's not going slow. That would be yeah. a tough run for me as as an ultra runner. And then I noticed you had a twelve mile ruck. Yes. And you had to do that in three hours. Is that right? Yep. And that, I don't know. I'm thinking to myself, all right, that's how, well, number one, what does that mean? There's there's going to be listeners that say, what does that mean? What, what's a ruck? So let's talk about that. And then, you know, that's a, that's a good pace when it you're is. rucking. It so, is. So, so talk a little bit about that experience. So I want to hit up the, the five mile run because running, 
Me too. Uh, on the, I, I love marathons. I've done an Ironman. I did my first ultra last year. I was wow. off-road. Never going to do that again. That's why I know that you're absolutely a lunatic. God, God, thank you for doing that so that I don't have to. But the the 12 mile wreck is you have a backpack on and in your, your military backpack, it, I had a minimum of 35 pounds. They had a packing list. They told you what to put in there. It weighed 35 pounds. And then you had another eight quarts of water, which, you know, do the math. That's another 10, 15, whatever pounds. And then you had a dummy rifle and then you had all your other gear and you're in boots and a military uniform. So you're not in, you know, like what I wear when I work out, booty shorts and a tank top. You're in, you're in your gear. And it goes, of course, concrete to a hill that's all gravel. So you're, you know, slipping and falling. You get to the top of the hill and you got to turn around and come back. And if I did a 12 mile road march today, I could do the, the three hours, not a problem. But that was the very last event of the ranger assessment phase, which is four days of very little sleep. You're eating, but you're eating three times a day and you're just throwing food in your mouth. You get like 10 minutes or less to eat. And so you're hungry, you're tired, you're sweaty, and you've been doing physical activities for four straight days. And of course, you have the stress of if you fail any event during the ranger assessment phase, that first week of school, you're done. You shaved your head, kissed your honeys goodbye, and, you know, packed up your life for a minimum of nine weeks. And you just, you just pack up your bags and leave if you fail any event. And that's the last major event. So the stress is really high. By that point in time, I actually was bleeding through my boots. My feet had blistered and it had popped open. And it was, it was, pretty disgusting. Honestly, <laughs> I was not looking good, but that was again, after things like the five mile run and after a swim test and after an obstacle course and after days and days and days of doing flutter kicks and push-ups and squats, every chance the instructors had to make sure that they were testing your physical fitness to, to ensure that you had the stamina to make it through the school. This was literally like the entrance exam to start ranger school. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so that's that's 15 minute miles for for those people out there that are running. With I don't know, I was trying to do math in my head. I'm sure that's over 50 pounds on your back, right? I said anybody, you have the rifle and everything, yeah. Yeah, with anybody that's done a little bit of backpacking knows that's no joke. And and at a 15 minute mile pace, that's uh, that's four miles an hour. And I don't know. That, that's here's for people that don't know. You got to walk at a pretty brisk pace. I mean, if you even walked at three and a half miles an hour, that's pretty. That's pretty fast. So nice. you're getting along pretty quick if you're doing four, averaging four miles an hour. So I don't know. That just seems to me like a, a pretty legit test. Yeah. And at five foot four, I've got these little squirrel legs that were just, you know, trying to go as fast as they can. So I will, I will not lie. I had to run quite a bit of it. All right. This leads me to my favorite quote. You know, everybody likes your your quote that you you threw out there earlier. But you know what my favorite quote is from your book, Lisa? No. You said, I want to be feminine and a badass. Yes. I go, that's that's my kind of person right there. So what do, what do you think about that that quote? So I tell the guys at jujitsu. So I train jujitsu in here in San Antonio. And I tell them all the time I want some cauliflower ear. And for, no, you don't. I know, I know. But for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's a horrible fluid fills up in the cartilage of your ear and it swells and it hardens and it's really painful and it looks like your ear went into a meat grinder. But here's the problem. At five foot four, I'm 140 pounds. I do not look intimidating. 
But if you, if I, you know, talk to my brand new little haircut behind a cauliflower ear, somebody would be like, damn, I'm not messing with her. And I kind of want something since I don't want to get a face tattoo. I kind of want something where people are like, damn, I don't want to mess with her. But there's nothing I can do to look like a badass. So I've accepted the fact that at 45, I'm still going to put makeup on, brush my hair once in a while, maybe even shower sometimes. I'm going to try to stay physically fit, but I want to look, I want to, I want to be a lady, but I still want to go bow hunting. I want to do all of the things. And that goes part into the delete the adjective. Don't put me in your little boxes. But I also want it to be okay for other people to have those same flexibilities. One of the things that gets really frustrating for me, and I talk about this a lot during my leadership lectures and when I run programs and workshops, is that if a woman is a stay-at-home mom, people will often say things like, oh my God, that's so fantastic. She sacrificed her career for her children. Or if you're a working mother, oh my God, look at her. She's balancing everything. Or if you're a working woman with no children, oh, she sacrificed her family. Like it's all about this, just wow, this woman has accomplished and achieved so much. And something that really frustrates me is if you find a guy who's a stay-at-home dad, he's a bum. If you find a guy who's traveling a lot for work and has kids at home, well, that's expected of him. And the the standards aren't the same. And, and part of talking about living in the and, which is being beautiful and a badass, is I want everybody to have that same opportunity. I want guys to be able to have the flexible, to ask for the flexible work schedule, it, to be able to say, hey, you know what? I don't want to travel because it is my, my daughter's confirmation or you know, I'm using parental examples because they're easy, but hey, my mom has an event and I want to stay home and be around for my mom's 50th birthday party or 70th birthday party. And, and so a lot of that, the, the and for me is not only I want to be both, but I want everybody else to be able to be both. And I specifically look at, I work, I've worked construction for many, many years. And I looked at those guys and I listened to those guys talk about how much they love their kids and they don't get to see their kids. And I think, God, what a, what a horrible position to be in to feel obligated to be so motivated and such a provider that it's not cool to, to want to just go home and snuggle with the babies on a Friday night. You know, that's a, that's a perspective I've never thought of. I always think of it from the, the female side of it of, you know, all those things that you said, but the same thing for men, they get put in a, a box that maybe they don't like. And so, you know, those expectations, and again, where do those come from? A lot of times they come from society, but, but again, you know, we're not victims to that just because society wants to, I don't know, put those, those expectations on us doesn't mean we have to play along. As I always like to say, be a rebel and say, ah, I'm not going to play that game. So I, I, I agree with you. All of us should break free from, from all of those boxes that society tries to put around us. I have in my notes here that in your book, I just want to mention this really quickly because I want to, I want to call you out, Lisa. In your book, you said you went to ranger school just before you turned the ripe old age of 37. <laughs> Yes. I was like, oh my gosh, that's not old Lisa. Most, <laughs> it's most, ancient in the military. Yeah. Well, compared to who you were going through ranger school with, yes. I think the average age was 23, if I remember right from the book. Yep. So yep. you were definitely, you probably looked like, you know, an old person to all them. But, but I also want to say that, oh my gosh, you're just hitting your prime at 37. So right. um, that's my opinion. Yeah. You know, what's really funny is I had somebody who was just talking trash, which is, 
in the military behind closed doors, that's the only type of conversation you have is trash talking. And he was talking trash to me and I literally pointed to my feet and I was like, this duffel bag has been in the army longer than you've been alive. So you can just <laughs> go do something inappropriate. We'll just yeah. Think. There's some, there's some power in that, in that age <laughs> and that wisdom. You know, I want to focus on something else that, that really stood out in your book. And I've seen it with other guests that I've had, especially women that were, were going into kind of an environment like you were. And I'm going to quote from your book. This came from your husband when you were offered a spot in, in at the ranger school and you weren't sure how he was going to respond, right? So you go to your husband and say, okay, I've got this opportunity. What do you think? And he said, you were made for this. You should do it. What does, and we'll talk another, about another person in a minute here, but what does that kind of support and self-belief do for you? I mean, what did you feel in that moment? Is that what, number, let's ask this, was that what you expected? And then what did it mean to you? Excellent question. So here's an interesting thing about my husband that not everybody knows is at the time he was in battalion command of a reconnaissance battalion. So with the Marine Corps, recon is, you know, you've got your infantrymen, which which they're pretty hardcore, but then you got your recon Marines and, and they pride themselves on how hardcore they are. And so he's not only in a recon unit, but he's in charge of a fairly large recon unit in the, the U.S. Marine Reserve. And so they don't have women, they're not integrated, but he's living this almost like a dual life where he's living in this non-integrated world, but then he has his wife who wants to live in the and. And he's constantly having to battle with that because his peers are like, what's your wife doing? And then my friends and his friends and our friends are like, wow, you're the most supportive guy ever. So he's, he's having to jostle these two worlds. And I didn't know what to expect from him. You know, part of me thought I part of me hoped he wanted me to not participate because he was in one of the hardest jobs he was ever going to be in his career. It was his dream job. He had always wanted to be a battalion commander. We had two young kids at home. I was living the dream with an excellent job at Shell Oil Company. So, you know, leaving was just straight up dumb. Like if you make your little lists and you're analytical, like this engineer is, it the the not going outweighed the going significantly. So when he threw the, hey, baby, you were made for this, I was like, damn it. Okay. And he did it in front of the kids too. So then they were like, hey, mom, you need to do this. <laughs> and, yeah. So he put me in a bad, great, wonderful situation. And just to, to tag onto that, to say what it's like to properly build your team. And again, I think of my family as my tribe, it's, and that includes some of my really close friends. But so if you're not married and you don't have kids and you don't have that tribe, you might have your, your social tribe. But one of the other things that Alan said to me, which has kind of become a mantra with our group of friends, is that when I left for ranger school, as he was stuffing me in the cab, he was like, here's the deal. Lisa stays home. Major Jaster is going to ranger school. I've got everything here you don't have to worry about being mom. I'm going to be mom and dad. Lisa stays at home. Ranger Jaster, Major Jaster flies to Fort Benning, Georgia. That's so, I mean, the support, I mean, that's awesome. And I also, so I picked up on a couple of things there. Number one, 
that you were kind of secretly hoping he would say, you know what, that's crazy, honey. Don't, don't, don't do that. So, <laughs> you know, if you're listening, maybe, you know, whenever we're going to do something scary, right? When we know that it's going to be hard and it's going to be scary, sometimes we're looking and we don't may not even realize we're looking for an out. And so maybe, maybe there was a little bit of that there, but I also look at it as what if he would have said that maybe you would have never became a ranger, Lisa, and that'd be a travesty. But where I really want to circle this back to is I, I believe that to say, you know, to say, I believe in you is, is maybe the three most important things you can say to somebody that you love. And so good for your husband that he says, I believe in you. And he, you know, gave you that little nudge out the door and exactly what you need from your tribe. And you went out and did great things. And of course you had to go do the work, but it had to be started somehow. And, and that was the catalyst. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and he was my biggest supporter throughout the whole thing. Like I would come home from work and he would have a weight vest in his hands. He's like, put this on because your legs aren't used to walking under load all day. And I don't want you coming home with shin splints. And, and I mean, he would do stuff like that. He would bet me pushups. Okay. How far do you think that car is away? He'd have his, we'd have our hunting range finders and, you know, knowing distances is extremely critical in the military. So I'd say 25 meters. And if I was wrong, he's like, all right, give me your pushups. You know, we would bet pushups for this. And, and he helped me incorporate training throughout my already really busy life because I wasn't full-time military. I was a reservist when I went. Yeah. Great to have like that as your team member or your, as your, as your battle buddy, yes. maybe your husband's your battle buddy. I don't know if that sounds good, but. It works. <laughs> You got another, you know, another great story about your friend from a former classmate, I believe it was, Jason, yeah, Jason. from from West Point that sent you just a, a well-written, very inspirational letter and you hadn't seen him in like 15 years. So yeah. what did that mean to you? You know, every time I talk about that letter, I read it on a, a video that the Army did. I just talked about it. I tear up because... Again, this guy is a hard-charging infantryman who's living in this world that's not integrated, that hasn't opened up to women, and he's going to have to resolve this this conflict of, well, I know Lisa could could probably do it, and as a person, I support her, and she's been my friend since 96, but oh my God, gender integration, like that's that's huge. And and so he had to deal with that as well. And the mere fact that not only he reached out, but he reached out out of the blue. It's another thing for your neighbor to come over and like high five you, give you knocks and be like, we know you can do it. Oh, no, you don't. But thank you for your support. (laughs) This was a deep down, hey, I have to deal with these conflicts. And I'm going to say at the end of the day, I support you. And, and that was a very emotional experience for me, surprisingly. And of course, the last thing you want is somebody telling you, yeah, you can do it. I'm a, I'm a badass and I believe you are too. And your response to be, oh my God, that's awesome. Like, doesn't really, doesn't really fit what the, the scenario, but it really was. It was a huge emotional impact for me. Yeah, I'm laughing because, you know, sometimes when I'm doing an ultra, I go, you got this. And, and sometimes I get pissy and I go, you have no idea if I got this because I don't know if I got right. this. So <laughs> I don't know. It, to me, it's like I'm struggling here and I don't know if I'm going to get there. But but yes. I appreciate your your vote of confidence that probably has nothing behind it. Let me let me let me emphasize something that, you know, in our today in today's day and age. Right. We're all busy. We, we, we got our, we got our lives, you know, we got our schedules packed and, and, and life is, is, 
is speeding by and and somebody like Jason takes the time and again read the book and you'll see it's a, it's a very nice eloquent well-written letter so he took the time out of his busy day busy life to say hey I want to give my you know my battle buddy a, a pat on the back and and inspire her and so I don't know maybe that's a good lesson for all of us to to keep your eye out for some opportunities that you can encourage somebody to go out and do something hard because I'm really big on the that idea because here's the thing I know Lisa you had doubts right anytime we do something hard we have yeah. doubts and it's so nice to have somebody that will just go you know what you can do this it's going to be hard but you can do this so I like that I like that message And I think the other thing is just to tag on what you're talking about Ron is that it's not just a text message or an email I received a paper letter in the mail Mm. and we forget since we have social media that a a Facebook birthday card is not the same as, you know, getting something in the mail and it doesn't have to be one of those $5 Hallmark cards, but getting a little note in the mail that says, Hey, I was thinking about you, especially now we talk a lot about depression, military. We talk about PTSD. PTSD is not a military only topic. You know, a lot of people are struggling with whatever's going on in their life, especially after COVID. And to spend the however many cents, I don't even know how much a stamp is nowadays because I just go to the mailbox and say, charge me. But, you know, you spend a little bit of time, you actually go to the mailbox, you put pen to paper. It, it means so much because it's not only the time, it's not only reaching out, but it's also I made a very, very deliberate effort to say, I think about you and I care about you. Good, good summary and good, good point. As we start to wrap up, there's one thing that I really, you know, the Forging Metal podcast is all about, let's talk about people who have done hard things and what did they learn from that? And why should we all go out and, and test ourselves with, with some challenges, right? I'm, of course, really big on this. I'm writing a book about it. I do a podcast about it. So these are topics that are near and dear to me. So I I ask you, Lisa, you went through Ranger School, which, by the way, about 50% from my research of of graduates will not make it through. It's not an easy thing to get through. You got through it. What, you know, in in the Navy SEALs, they like to use the word evolution, which I kind of like. And so how, if we call your Ranger School an evolution, how did Lisa come out of that differently? And how do you look at life differently now because of your experiences of doing that hard thing in Ranger School? You know, Ranger School is a challenge for anybody. At 37, it's a completely different story. We don't recover the same way. We don't, I don't even lose weight the same way as the guys did. And I, I want to say that one of the best things that came out of Ranger School for me was I was 15 plus years older than many of my peers. And some of them were, you know, 19 years old. And I turned 38 a couple of weeks after graduation. So I'm literally twice their age. And one of the best things that came out of there is we are generational. As much as we, we talk about all these different biases, ageism is a real one that we all automatically feel. Damn kids, they don't know what they're thinking about. And, and that one is more prevalent than probably anything else, at least in my life. So to have to live and sleep in bunk beds and share facilities with guys that are half my age and have never deployed, have, have never even held a, a corporate job, have lived in the barracks and were walked to every meal of the day. 
And, you know, I came in kind of with these preconceived notions about this younger generation, the millennials, the, you know, the Tide Pod eating generation. And I got to sit there and and really get to know them. And it has developed my way of dealing with people in the past seven or eight years so much. My leadership style has changed significantly because there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I love to talk about it. We all have the same needs. Well, so does the millennials. And they, but they just address it differently. And I got to peel the onion and really see behind the curtain of how the younger generation thinks, which helps me understand how the generations that preceded us also think. So one of the biggest things that I took away from Ranger School, and I I keep a reminder on my desk, I keep little notebooks with this in there, is I need to speak to people the way they need to hear me. The general patents of World War II who said, take that hill and everybody just ran and took it, that won't work today. That that doesn't have a future in our military, at least not right now. And it doesn't in the business world anymore either. I can't just say thou shalt as a leader, as a supervisor and walk out. And I learned from these younger gentlemen that, you know, they are just as driven as we are. They have all the same desires we we do. They want to succeed. It's just morphed a little bit. And once you learn how to speak to your audience, then you can be a lot more productive, both as a leader and as a member of team. So that was the best thing I think I took out of Ranger School, other than the scars on my feet. Oh, great lesson. Great lesson. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, I go, like, some of those, they, they could have been your son. You know, you're 38 years old. They're 19. You know, that's, yeah, that's not too far-fetched. So I could um, be mom. <laughs> funny side story. I had a guy who's redhead. I won't mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him. He's still in the military. But I'm not only the same age as his mother, but he happened to be a redhead. And when our hair started growing in, everybody could see that we were both redheads. And he had passed out at the gun. And I was like, dude, you got to wake up. You got to work up. And he actually yelled out in the middle of a patrol base, mom, I'm coming downstairs. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I kind of got dubbed as Mama Ranger for a little bit there. Mama Ranger. I, I kind of like that. I'm sure there's a lot of moms out there say I'm I'm already a Mama Ranger, Lisa. You know, one of the things that, that I think of, though, is when I do hard things, you know, I say there's nothing that I'm going to face in my in my I don't know, my work or my business life that's going to be as hard as some of the things I've done, like in an ultra run or or even the doing an Ironman, you know. So I like to test myself like that so that other things in life that I used to think were a big deal, I just go, you know what, that's no big deal. Do you have that same sense from going through something hard like that? You know, I'll say it. I don't know that I always believe it. When I entered corporate world from the military, I had... I went to Afghanistan very soon after September 11th, came back and went almost immediately to Iraq. And then I spent two years, I did my graduate studies, and then I spent two years in South Korea. There was a nuclear scare during that time. So all really challenging. So in my work life, oftentimes when people are getting excited and they don't know how to keep that cool head, I'll say things like, hey, nobody's going to die today. Like nobody's getting shot at. But I don't know that I always believe that. So now that I wear a root heart rate monitor, it's kind of funny to see how many times I look very placid on the outside and the inside is just going completely nuts. Like my heart rate is out of control. I like to believe I feel that way. But then when I look at the digital data, I don't, I'm like the duck. My feet are just going crazy, but I'm just 
smooth sailing yeah, at the top of the water. That, that's good. I just got a smartwatch that's Whoop. If you're not familiar with Whoop, it, it's basically a real, I used to have one. It's got a lot of information, probably more than most people need. But but all the smartwatches nowadays are, are measuring heart rate variability, which is a, a pretty good measure of stress. And so I've got my new smartwatch that's driving me crazy right now, Lisa. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I'm like, like oh, I, I don't feel like I'm stressed, but my watch is telling me I'm really wired right now. And and then I and then there's other times when I feel like I'm wired, and my watch tells me you're nice and calm right now. So. I'm trying to get a sense of if there's a there's anything I can learn from that. So I'm I'm kind of in that boat too. Of a lot of times I feel like I'm I'm calm, and but my watch is telling me otherwise. Now that might be true. You know, I like to call it residual stress. Right? We we carry the stress, and we we don't really know that we're carrying that stress. Like it's in our backpack, yes. and it, it can sneak up on us. So maybe, maybe all of us pay attention to what you're carrying around your backpack. All right. I, I know we got to get, we got to get you out of here because you got to go out there and, and change the world. Lisa, as I was doing research, I said this off the air, but I'll say it for all the listeners. I was doing research for you. I'm like, my goodness, Lisa, you're involved in a lot of stuff. So <laughs> let's get right to, all right. How can people work with you? What do you do? It sounds like you do some coaching, some speaking, some training. How can people work with you? Where can they get your book? And by the way, all of this will be in the show notes. But lay it on us, Lisa. Okay, so I am a partner at Talent War Group. We are an executive coaching talent management firm. So we do executive coaching. We do leadership development workshops. Those are the two areas that I work a lot in. And then I I really enjoy doing keynote speeches. I love going into new environments and and kind of opening people's minds to some of the discussions we've had here. But then Talent War Group also does executive placement so Talent War Group, you can reach me through there. I have my own website, which is deletetheadjective.com. You can find a lot of the media links and my book. If you want a signed copy, you can get there. My book is available, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com. The Audible is out there. The audio is out there. It's just not on Audible yet. So we're working through that. But also, and I know a lot of people are anti-social media. I love social media. If you reach out to me with an honest question or you want to follow one of my public sites, Lisa Jaster, delete the adjective, or Twitter or Instagram, please do. I, I've made a lot of really interesting relationships that way. And one of the fundamental parts of the army that I adore is the fact that the military believes in teaching, coaching, and mentoring. So if you're out there and you're struggling, I might not be the right person for you, but I might be able to help point you in the right direction so you can find somebody to help you through whatever challenges you're going through because you're not alone. We all go through challenges. They're just not the same. Love it. Are, are you? Did you narrate your own book? I did. My mom nice. was like, ooh, that was an offensive part. And I didn't want to listen to my daughter say that. That's funny. Was it was it hard doing your narration? No, it was it was interesting. It was it was fun and it was I think the biggest challenge is once I start getting feedback, like I'm really looking forward. I, I check every day to see if anybody reviews it because I want to know what they think, Be but careful. I don't want to know what they think. <laughs> A lot of authors say don't read your reviews. Yeah. But great. I love it. And I always think it's powerful when the author reads their book, if they can pull it off. I've seen some authors try to pull it off and then they do not do a good job. So I'm sure from listening to you on this podcast, Lisa, you, you knocked it out of the park. All right, let's get to the, this last question. It's always a hard one. What's your greatest failure, Lisa? And what did you learn from it? 
I think my greatest failure is exactly what I needed at the right time. So I'm a very Christian woman and I think it was a God thing. I went to West Point. I was doing very well getting A's in military and physical aspects of the school. Not so good on the academic side, but the, the military and physical, I was spot on and I got in trouble and I got in trouble bad enough that I had to go through what's called a brigade board. And I'm not going to like reveal all the details because I'm still embarrassed. I'm 45 years old. This happened when I was 19 and I'm still embarrassed. Imagine that. But it's it was a challenge for me because I got knocked off my pedestal. I did something wrong and had to, number one, admit to it. Number two, it became public knowledge. And then number three, I had to deal with it for two years. So I got two years of post-restriction. I got disciplinary tours, which means I had to march back and forth with polished shoes, polished brass belts, and a very clean rifle for hours on end. That's what disciplinary tools, tours at the academy are. So I got knocked off my pedestal. And leading up to going to West Point, even the first semester that I was there, I thought I was the bomb.com. And getting in trouble and being so embarrassed that literally a 45-year-old mother of two still can't admit to what an 18 and 19-year-old was doing behaviorally wrong resulted in me becoming an empathetic person for the first time in my life. Until then, why is this so hard for you? I don't understand why you just can't do the right thing. I don't understand. Like, I didn't understand. And having that event... So early in my life, getting in trouble, say it's an inappropriate senior subordinate relationship. I was dating an upperclassman. You're not supposed to do that, which is something that every college student does, right? A freshman can't date upperclassmen. That sounds ridiculous. Well, at West Point, that's a rule and I broke it and I got in, in big trouble for it. And so I'm, I'm dealing with that issue. And I now understand that people aren't perfect and people struggle in different ways and people struggle with rules or they struggle with situations. And it's our job going back to the teach coach mentor. It's our job as people who have gone through that path already. I know you deal with it as a teacher. I know you deal with it even when you talk to people on podcasts. It's our job to help people deal with their challenges because we're all challenged. As I've said probably a hundred times today, we're all challenged. We're just challenged differently. And had I not gotten to the point where I got, I got two years of punishment, which means I was very close to not being able to graduate from West Point because I had an inappropriate relationship. That changed my life. That changed my trajectory. And that changed my personality. And even though I'm still embarrassed about it, I am so happy that that happened to me the way it did. And then I was able to come out on the far side because without that, I don't know that I could have figured out what I talked about at Ranger School. I need to talk to these people the way they can hear me, not the way I want to project. Like that, that's directly associated with that 19-year-old lesson. I learned it a little bit better at 37. So I don't know if that's that's where that ranges in your other examples, but that definitely forged me as a leader and as a person. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.